Luke 16. Jesus has been, in this section of Luke, critiquing the Pharisees. In Luke 15, he really goes at them about how they're treating the sinners and tax collectors in their midst. And you'll recognize probably those parables. It's the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. The parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 16, he's dealing with how the Pharisees have a love of wealth. That they are zealous, they love God, but they also love their stuff, right? And so he, he tells a story of a dishonest manager. And then he says, you can't love God and money. Something he also says in, uh, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And then it, the text tells us the Pharisees were lovers of money. So when they heard Jesus teaching them these things, they ridiculed him. They made jokes about him. Like, like you can imagine, like, of course, this Poor guy walking around, you know, he's got a critique of wealth because he doesn't have any. You know what I mean? And they start making all these comments and kind of, kind of joking about it. See, they have an assumption, an assumption that if God is pleased with you, then you should be blessed. That if God is displeased with you, then, uh, then things go badly for you. Okay? And, and actually, probably deep down, a lot of us have some of that same assumption, Right? Except we all know some people who are terrible people, but do really great. And we all know lovely people for whom they get no good luck. Okay? Um, uh, and so, so Jesus is sort of critiquing their worldview a little bit here. And so he tells them a fantastic story about a rich man and a character named Lazarus. Now, a lot of the teachings of Jesus are, are very like simple. A lot of the parables like very short, very simple. This parable in particular has a lot of rich, colorful details. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it so that you get the whole thing. And then I want to go piece by piece and try to try to pull out some of these little details because because there's a lot of it packs a lot of punch in this little parable. Okay, so I'm in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. I'll read the whole thing and then I'll read some of the pieces again. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, Between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our story begins with a man. We get several descriptions of this man. No name, but we're told that he's a rich man. Not only is he a rich man, but he wears fine linens. Okay, he's got on nice clothing. Now, people wore all kinds of clothing back then, but to have really fine linens... Smooth linens, that was a lot harder. That was a lot more expensive. Furthermore, they're purple. In, in the ancient world, purple was made, the, the source of the purple was a dye of these really small mollusks that they would get out of the Mediterranean Sea. Now think about this. They don't have scuba gear. Okay? So they got to go get these mollusks. It's kind of dangerous to get all these mollusks out of the sea, Mediterranean Sea. And mollusks are not real big. So when you get one, you just get a little bit of purple, okay? And so you understand how much purple it would take to dye a cloth, okay? And furthermore, you, you actually, there, there are different kinds of mollusks that would have a little bit different purple. And what they would often do is they would dip it multiple times. They might dip it in this, this seashell, and then this seashell's dye, and then this seashell's dye. And so purple was a symbol of royalty because only the rich could afford the purple dye. Everybody's with me so far? So this is extravagance. He's wearing really expensive Armani all the time. Everybody's with me on the story so far? Now, it also says that he is feasting sumptuously every day. Most people didn't feast like ever. The only time he feasted was like uh, a wedding you know, we get lots of wedding, big banquets. You might get invited if you were important to a banquet. Most people ate bread and fish. And even the wealthy, you didn't really eat like big meals. It was small meals, small pieces throughout the day. Maybe one single meal if you were wealthy. This guy is eating big meals, feasts every stinking day. And there's no giant eagle, right? There's no restaurants, which means he's got to have cooks working all the time, which means he's always got to have, he's got to have a big farm because he's got to constantly have uh, wine. He's got to constantly have a fatted calf ready to go. Every day he's eating like this. Furthermore, there was one day you're not allowed to eat like that. The Sabbath. So this is a man who even on the Sabbath has all his cooks making these big feasts. Okay, this is a man of extravagance. He's eating seafood. He's eating steak. He's got the finest wine at breakfast. Everybody's with me so far? Okay. We also know he has a gate. <laughs> you, not everybody has a gate, right? He's got a fenced off big piece of property. He keeps people out. Only the people that he wants to come to the feast. And we're told that at the gate is another man, which is in direct contrast to this rich man. Again, Jesus gives us some great colorful details. He's a poor man. And he's named Lazarus. Do you know this is the only character named in a parable of Jesus other than like Abraham who already had a name. This is the only named character in all of the parables. So why the name Lazarus? Well, on the one hand, it's sort of in contrast to this rich man. Like in society, you would think the rich man had a name. Okay, really, really rich people, we know their names. Okay, really, really poor people, we don't typically know their names. But here, Lazarus has a name. But notice, he's covered in sores. And Jesus says, very specifically, that he is laid at the gate. 
You understand what that means? He's in such pain and agony from his sores, he can't walk to the gate himself. He has to be laid at the gate. He's probably there trying to beg from the fancy guests that come in to this rich man's feast. So so even to have a name of this man is ironic. But furthermore, the name itself, the name Lazarus actually means God has helped. I don't know about you, but that's kind of an ironic name, right? Doesn't seem like God has helped this guy very much. He's got all these sores. He can't even walk. And imagine the psychological torture of sitting outside of this gate in this banquet, smelling the food, listening to the party inside. And the only comfort he's getting is from the dogs. Okay? Maybe these are guard dogs. Some have suggested that. Maybe this is guard dogs. Like the guard dogs are giving sympathy, but nobody else seems to be giving this guy anything. Dogs, um, they, they lick their wounds, right? Because that's soothing for them. And saliva, the saliva of dogs is actually shown to be antibiotic. Um, and so maybe the only comfort, ironically, again, that he's getting are from the dogs. This doesn't seem like someone God has helped. So his very name is ironic. I don't know that God has helped him. Certainly the rich man hasn't. So Jesus sets up these two characters, and then he says that these two characters die. And he says that the, the poor man, Lazarus, is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now remember in the parables, proximity to the host is important. Okay, So the, Lazarus doesn't just make it to heaven. He's at Abraham's side. He, he's, at the, he's at the head of the table. Okay? And then the text says that the, the rich man dies, and it says he was buried. Okay, almost implying that Lazarus doesn't get buried. He just dies. No funeral for Lazarus. Maybe this, this rich man, he gets a big funeral, right? Big to do. Everybody shows up, thanks him for the food. But then he does not go to Abraham's side. He goes to Hades, where he is in torment. Now, some people have tried to make this text really like about how heaven and hell work. I don't think it's like that, right? I think this is a parable and we should treat it as a parable because in the parable, he can actually see heaven and he looks up and he can see Abraham and he can see Lazarus. And so he he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice a couple of things that he, he several times calls Abraham father or, or really could be translated my father. It seems like he's almost playing the race card here. He's almost saying, hey, father Abraham, you had like many sons and I am one of them. Do you think you could, you know, throw me a bone here? Can you send Lazarus down with some water just to give me some relief in this torment? And, and interestingly enough, he doesn't talk to Lazarus. Did you notice that? Like almost like, like Lazarus was a beggar and a poor man and not important in life. And in the afterlife, he's not important either. I'm going to direct my account. In fact, he almost wants Lazarus to serve him in the afterlife. Hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus down here? Right? Notice also, he knows Lazarus's name. Right? He doesn't like, hey, that guy that was always, up, you know, I think I've seen him around town. No, he knew Lazarus's name. That means he can't say, oh, I, I didn't know about this guy, right? I didn't know there was this, this character in sores suffering right outside my gate. He knew his name. 
He knew his name and, and, and he was aware of Lazarus. And, and he has the nerve to then ask Abraham to send him down to the torment to give me a little bit of relief. Like, what, what kind of pride is this? Now, listen again to Abraham's answer. He says, child, or it could be translated son. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And he goes on to say, right, that there's this chasm. I can't get down there, you can't get up here, right? But what is he really saying? Like, hey, you had your good stuff. Like, you want water now? You had all the wine you ever wanted. You had all the feast you ever wanted. Now the roles are reversed. See, you, you had your good stuff. Now you get what you get. So the rich man asked for something else. Again, not talking to Lazarus, also asking Lazarus to serve him still. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Finally, the rich man has some kind of sense for somebody other than himself. Okay? But interestingly enough, he has five brothers. Did you catch that? That's a strange detail, right? He could just say brothers. Jesus is telling the story. He could just say, ah, tell my brothers, tell my family, whatever. Why the specificity of five? Well, uh, you got to understand that, that in Hebrew thinking, numbers are important. Okay? And uh, what's the perfect number? Do you know? Seven. Seven is the perfect number. What's the worst number? Six. Okay, the worst number is what's short of seven, which is six. In fact, in Revelation, what's the very worst number? Six, 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 triple sixes. Bad, bad, bad. That's what six, six, six means. Okay, so we've got a man, rich man, and he's got how many brothers? Five, meaning he has a family of six. He's got an unlucky, bad number family. What he needed was a seventh brother. And I think part of what Jesus is implying here is, He had one. He had a brother. The brother he didn't know he had. A brother who sat outside his gate every day. Right? A seventh brother that hungered for what he could smell from the gate. That the rich man never saw as his brother. So Abraham had no sympathy for these brothers. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets, that's shorthand for the Old Testament, for the Hebrew Scriptures. Like, okay, they've got the Scriptures. They should know who God is. They should know how to avoid this torment thing. <laughs> and what, what, is, what does rich man say? No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responds, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In film, we call this foreshadowing, Right? Okay? Because in this story, somebody is going to rise from the dead, right? And he's critiquing, who's he critiquing? He's critiquing these Pharisees. And, and they're going through all of this. They've got the law and the prophets. They're the experts on the law and the prophets. And yet when it comes to following Jesus, they are missing the boat. And so what he says is, hey, even if someone comes back from the dead, you guys aren't going to get this. And of course, he's going to come back from the dead See, many of these parables have been used in the past to beat up people with means, people with wealth, people who are prosperous. But that's not the point of the parable. The Bible is, uh, there's, there's good characters with wealth, there's bad characters with wealth, 
There are people that travel with Jesus that basically fund his ministry. Okay, so so there are it's not a matter of whether wealth is good or bad. The question in the Bible is, what does what do you do with your wealth? Or maybe the better question is, what does your wealth do with you? Okay, part of the question is, how do you get what you got? If you got what you got because of the expense of other people, then that's problematic. The prophets are all over Israel about that stuff. But Jesus is also saying that what you do with what God gives you is important. That, that what you have can either help you love God and love neighbor or can actually get in the way of loving God and loving neighbor. And part of what they're saying to the Pharisees is, he's saying to the Pharisees is, you know what? Your stuff is getting in the way of you loving your neighbor, which means it's actually keeping you from loving God the way you are supposed to. See, when your stuff gets in the way of your faith, it's a problem. And it's sometimes easier for those with resources to become more self-reliant so they don't need God or more self-indulging so they tend to want to ignore people that have other needs. And I, and I want to tell you that you're an American, which means you're in this category. Okay, um, compared to the world, we, we are all people of means. In 2020, I looked this up. The average American household made $67,000 a year. The average worker made $35,000 a year in America. So for a lot of people in this room and in our area, we, we are considered wealthy by American standards. Now, compare that to the world. In... Um, Uh, over the last couple years, this has stayed pretty consistent, that the average income for a person in the world is about $10,000 a year. And that number is greatly skewed because of wealthy people, (laughs) because of the extremely rich. That number is skewed very much up, which means more than half of the people in the world are going to make $10,000 a year or under by American standards. Okay? We are people of wealth. We are people of means. And that's not a bad thing, but the question is, what are you doing with that? Okay, Is it coming between you and God, or you and your neighbor, or is it something that you're using to serve God and to serve your neighbor? See, the church has a word for this, and the word is stewardship. Very unpopular word, because it typically comes out when the church needs money. Okay, But... Uh, notice there's nothing about giving to the church in this parable. The, the question is, what, what do you, what, what's going on in your heart? Right? That God, what stewardship really means is that God gives you very much in your life. That we all have families, a house, a job, a bank account, a car, employees that work for us, next door neighbors, our environment, our world, our community. And that we have to answer to God for how we treat those things. Because ultimately, they're God's, not ours. And so the question is, is for the Pharisees and for us, does our stuff keep us from loving God and loving our neighbors to the fullness? Or are we using our resources, our means, our opportunities to help those? Because look, we've got Moses and the prophets. And we've got the guy that rose from the dead. There's no foreshadowing with us. We know Easter. Hey, we have Paul and the apostles. We have the church tradition we should know to care for others. How often are we just looking at ourselves and what we have and what we want? And then like most of the parables, the parable just ends, right? We don't get a conclusion. 
It's almost like the, like the rich man calls out to Abraham. Abraham just tells him no, and that's the end of the parable. And amazingly, the, the other amazing part of the parable for me is that Lazarus says absolutely nothing in the entire parable. We don't get him to complaining at the beginning. We don't get him like, eh, ha, ha, see a rich man. You ignored me. I had to smell your feasts all those years. And now, no, no bitterness, no anger. Just sort of a, a, a silence from Lazarus. And I guess that leaves us in the parables an opportunity to decide how we would respond. Right? So if today you identify a little too much with that rich man, I would ask, where are the Lazaruses in your life that you've been ignoring? What's the fine linen and the feast that maybe you need to give up because of somebody else that's in need around you? Open your gates. Open your hearts. Share your table. And if some of you heard this story and you identified a little bit with Lazarus, please know today that your sores are not a sign that God has abandoned you. Maybe people have abandoned you. Maybe people haven't been right with you. Maybe people haven't cared for you the way that they were supposed to. But that does not mean that God is not there to help. You have the one who was risen from the dead. Find your hope there. Let us pray. Lord, may each of us in our hearts and in our minds understand what you have to say to us in the parable. May we be aware how blessed we are and may that blessing go to bless others. May we love you and love our neighbor with what we have and what you've given us to steward. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.